hardly see it. <laughs> um, the reading is from Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 21, on page 1049. The son, who'd returned from a far land, said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Just a couple of, uh, couple of things before I begin that I forgot to say before, one of which is huge thank you to Amanda and Nicola for last night for the Jane Austen Ball, actually fantastic evening um, as part of that, so thank you for your hard work, but also it's a real team effort in doing it, so that was great, so thank you so much for that. The other thing is to say if you're a student and you're visiting here today, we're delighted that you'll come to join us. There are loads of great churches in the city, and uh, there's a group of churches we love to be a blessing to the city and for us to be a blessing to you, so you're also particularly welcome today. Um, for those who are following where we're going, um, we're in Luke 15, we're taking some time in Luke 15, and I really want to encourage you, I've got 10 copies this morning, if you do nothing else this term, in terms of reading, to read The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. Fantastic book. So I'm, I'm not one of the avid readers, it's, it's kind of just over 100 pages, won't take you long to read. But if you're someone a little bit like the Alpha Course, who's trying to say, well, what on earth is Christianity actually about, then it's a brilliant book in terms of trying to get to the heart of what Christian faith is about. And really, uh, there are 10 copies. If, if you're going to read it, uh, you can take a copy this morning uh, as part of where we're going. But let me pray. Come, Lord Jesus, afresh this morning. Would you clear away the clouds, the darkness that comes against us personally, across this city, and us as a church? And would you shine your light afresh upon us? Father, we need your revelation this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Pete has set up this morning really, really well as part of thinking about what it means to be family. Emily, if you've got um, one of the slides to put up, um, we'll realize that, and if you go on to the next one as well, um, we'll realize that all of us come from a different perspective 
about family. All of us have had different, different experiences for good and for ill. And in many ways, this captures some of the kind of attitude that we think about. And remember, as far as anyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. I don't know whether you know Despicable Me. I'd like to welcome John, my brother-in-law, to, uh, to church this morning, uh, as someone that he did. But actually, sometimes the minions capture something. Every family has one weird relative. If you don't know who it is, oh, sorry, it must be on auto forward. Um, it's you. And lastly, for those who've gone on holiday um, and family, family vacation, a time for you to remember why your family never spends any time together. <laughs> When, uh, uh, before we were in Bath, we were in the city of Winchester, and one of the house churches in Winchester, when we arrived, used to call itself the Family Church. And um, by the time I'd left, they'd changed their name. They'd changed their name because they realized, and they came to realize that for many people, the word family can be quite challenging and quite difficult to get beyond that. So how do we communicate something what it means to be a community, but not just bring all our baggage, our lots of baggage, to the story too? So we're looking at this great parable from Luke 15, which many writers, most theologians would say, encapsulates some of the heart of what it is to see the good news of Jesus. It's one of the most well-known parables that we're looking at, but I'd like to suggest to you, if you've read it many times, and you've not read beyond that, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. And this morning we're looking at the theme of sonship. Because right at the end of the passage that we had read this morning, the father says something a little bit strange, doesn't he, in verse 24. He says, my son was dead, but is alive again. My son was dead, but is alive again. I mean, did this father think his son was actually physically dead? Well, obviously the answer to that is no, of course he didn't. And you'll notice also in the passage uh, that Liz read as well beautifully, it says that the younger brother twice in this reading comes back to when he tries to make peace with his father, says this, he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Really interesting kind of dynamic between this father and this son. And the only way to understand this, the only way to get to grips with what on earth is going on in this conversation between this father and this son is to understand that at that time, sonship was a status. And this young man had lost his status as a son. So he's actually right when he comes to his father and says, I'm no longer a son. Why is he right to say that? There are at least a couple of things about what people understood relationships and sonship was all about at the time this was written. See, the son was a person whose job it was to carry on the good family name. For us, it's just a name. But in those days, a name meant everything. It was about what you stood for, what you valued, what your beliefs were. And it mattered to have that name. And actually, one of the sons, and particularly the son's job, was to actually carry on the good family name that you were inherited from your father. It was your job to carry on the good family name. 
But it was also a job for this son to carry on the family business. And this is a place where, if you read carefully, you'll realize many of us have real difficulty with some of the things in this passage. Because this is how ancient sonship worked in those days. And for us, it can seem really unfair and unjust. Because in those days, the eldest son got virtually most of the inheritance. The other sons got some inheritance. And if you were a daughter, you got nothing. You got absolutely nothing. And so, for example, I don't know about you, but if you're someone who has children, is that today, if you're someone who has an inheritance, what we would generally do if we've got three kids it would say, well, how do I divide what I have equally to my children? And you divide your state up equally between three different people. But the thing about that is that within two or three generations, that asset is lost. We think about an asset today in terms of money, in terms of stocks and shares, in terms of cash, you know, actually things that are liquid. But in those days... You didn't survive unless you had a strong, cohesive family. The family was a basic form of government. It's how your physical, social, emotional, and political needs were met. And the wealth that these people had was to do with the land and to do with animals. And it was the oldest son's job to keep the family wealth intact and to keep it all together the law of primogeniture, I think it's called. And that, for us, as we read this in 2019, may seem very unfair to us. But actually, if you look back on it, it really was the way that people could survive. The land, the animals, and a strong, cohesive family. In this context... You'll also see that, for those of you who know something of Scripture, is that you'll see how incredibly shocking it was when Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4, when he says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ, so that all might receive the full rights of being sons and heirs of God. See, all of us, through the work of Jesus, if you respond to Jesus, to his call on your life and put your trust in him, are heirs and sons. But it's not just about this distant God who's amazing, powerful, and king, but we receive the sonship from a father who loves us. So we call God Abba. We say, Abba, Father. And here we have, and what we see here is a God who comes to us as a king, as a powerful king, but also at the same time as a loving, tender-hearted father. Because we're family. It's not abstract concepts. We're in relationship with a loving heavenly father and through jesus we're sons and heirs now if you're a woman reading this today the gender language can be slightly difficult and feel what kind of 
what's this for me? How is this helpful for me? You know, they got the status in the time. It's kind of all the oppressive patriarchal societies. This isn't good. But Paul makes it clear that the dividing line has been broken in Christ Jesus. Sons and daughters, equal place, equal honor, equal love in one family of God. So what does this mean for us this morning? What does our sonship look like? What does this, how does this apply to me? If I understand the idea that God is a father, a loving father, and he calls me into relationship with him as a father, as a son or a daughter, what does it mean to be adopted into God's family? And there's three things I just want to talk about, about what it means to be adopted into God's family. Firstly is deep security. In the language of adoption, it's not a gradual change in nature. To be adopted means that at one point you are outside the family, and now, after adoption, you are in the family. You're in. Just like that. However, most of us don't see it like that. Most of us find that language difficult, that idea difficult in a real uh, tangible way in our relationship with God. We're more like this younger brother in this story. We're absolutely like this younger brother, I would suggest, in this, in this story. He says, do you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be called your son. If you looked at what really I do, what really goes through my mind during an average week, the thoughts of my heart, the at my attitude and my actions to other people, make me like one of your hired servants. Make me like one of your hired servants, we'd say. In other words, we'd say, I don't deserve sonship. I don't deserve to be a son or a daughter. Let me pay you back bit by bit, so I can earn my way back into your good books, God. Somehow, I will earn my way back for the bad things I've done. But the father, and bear in mind this son has squandered everything, will have none of it. He has absolutely none. The father says, bring a robe and put a ring on his finger. The signet ring was a thing that a family made business deals with. It was a contract seal. It was a family seal. And the father is conferring sonship onto his son just like that. Just like that. In a stroke. Now, most of us this morning would say, Do you know, this morning, I don't know how you're feeling. You know, maybe you feel you've got to earn God's love. That if this week, if I read my Bible enough, if I don't criticize my boss or my spouse enough, if I'm not horrible to my kids much, if I pray a little bit, maybe, if I try and love a few people around me on one of my good days, then God will take me to heaven. But the biblical God will have none of that. Because when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you put your trust in him, you get full rights as sons. Full rights as sons. That's an amazing thing. An incredibly deeply secure position to be in. 
Most of us seem to approach our relationship with God like we're some kind of hard employee. You know, if I perform badly, I have 10 reviews that tell me I'm rubbish, and eventually just get shot at me, because actually I'm not really a very good Christian. Then you're a hard person. There's no security in being a hard person. But sonship has status. Sonship has standing, and sonship is secure. Famously, there was a vicar that some of you will have heard of years ago called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he had a pastoral question he would ask people who came to see him. And he, he had a really simple question that he asked people who came to see him. And he said this. He said, let me ask you right now, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? If the person who was in front of him said, well, do you know, I'm trying. He would know that in front of him is a person who's a hired person, who's a hired employee. It's not someone who's understood what it means to be a child of the living God. Here's a person who wants to be a hired person, employee, who can earn their way into God's favor, but doesn't know the deep security of a loving relationship with a heavenly father. So today... What would you answer to that question? Are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? Well, my prayers is that be something you could answer unequivocally. Secondly, what we see is you get intimate access as a child of God. A child has access to the Father like no other. If you're a king or you're prime minister or you're president, do you have access as a child of a king, a president, or a, a prime minister like nobody else does? I have to say, I love it when I see a video online of a kind of a, a, a dad who's doing uh, his work at home, homeworking, he's got the video, he's on a conference call, and he's doing this kind of really serious business meeting. And then his little son comes in behind, through the door, behind him as he's in this video call, saying, Daddy, I pooed myself. Could you change my nappy? And kind of you go, that's access. That's what God's talking about. We have access to the Father as a child of the living God. Um, as part of... My relationship is uh, with Joe as, as when Joe, say for example, wakes up at three in the morning and she whacks me on the shoulder and says, you know, I'm really thirsty. I say to darling, you're an adult. <laughs> there's a tap downstairs, there's a cup, off you go. Unless she's very poorly. When my child comes in, grabs me on the shoulder and says, Daddy, I'm thirsty. You get out of bed and you get water. A child of God has access to his father 24-7, seven days a week, 24-7. Instant access all day long. Are you using it? Are you using it? Do you realize you have access to the creator of this universe 24-7? That's what it means to be a child of the living God. We're sons and daughters. And lastly, on this section in Future Hope, so 
when the Bible talks about being an heir of God, we are heirs of God's kingdom. The new heavens and the new earth, a future promise, a future hope. No more suffering, no more pain, no more stain. That's our future. That's our inheritance. And I don't know about you, it's very easy if you read the papers or whether you look on the internet very regularly, follow the news. Politically, whether it's in this country or around the world, we haven't been in more unsettled times than for a very, very long time, it feels. This morning, you might be going through all sorts of financial chaos, personal chaos. You may have health issues across the board. Do you know, but wouldn't it be nice to be sat here this morning? Wouldn't it be nice to know that matter how bad the world situation is, no matter how many good or bad choices you're making on a week-by-week basis, then actually you will inheritance, you have an inheritance that is imperishable. You have an inheritance that is secure and a future that is certain. A future with God for all eternity. To be living constantly in the presence of God. So if you're a person this morning who grasps, wants to grasp, or get, wants to get to grasp what it, what it means to be a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, there's a deep security from knowing the assurance of the love of the Heavenly Father. You have constant access. And you can know that in spite of what's going on in your world, there is a future hope that can't be shaken. So what does that look? That's very personal, but let me, I just want to push that a bit further this morning to say what would that look like for us as St. Swithins. The Bible describes Christian relationships, the relationships between one another as loving one another, but it also goes a little bit further in pushing it by talking about brotherly love. And the ancients understood when the Bible was written that actually this had massive implications for us. There was a great critic of the church called Lucian of Samosata, who was a big critic of the early church, hated what was going on. He said this. He said, their founder, Jesus Christ, persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despised their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. See, these people were not members of a social club or a hospital or a religious organization. They were a family of brothers and sisters. I know that's difficult. I grew up in a family. I have a family, and I understand that's difficult. And we don't choose our siblings, do we? We really don't. We're born into them. And for good and for ill, there's a bond from being born into a family. In Bath, there are loads of great churches in Bath. You can choose one of those churches. But I'd like to suggest to you that once you get inside this church, what we're looking for as a church here at St. Swithins is this. We don't avoid the people we don't like. We don't just stick with the people like us, flocking together with people with the same opinions, same thoughts, same values, same ideas. We're brothers and sisters. That means there's no difference. It means we're committed unconditionally to our brothers and our sisters. We're all in the same family. 
Secondly, I want to talk about transparency. Last week, we went away as a staff team, and we spent some time, sir, there was a chap helping us do some work, a retired vicar, and we spent some time just being honest about the things where things are not going well in our lives and in our ministries. But you need a secure place to be tra- transparent. We need to be a place that can be trusted with other people's stuff to be transparent. Because actually the reality is most people tend to see through us anyway. That's what it means to be, to be human. We see each other, we make judgments about people, and people know what we're like. In families, people really know what we're like. We can be honest, find those places of honesty to enable us not to constantly live weighed down by guilt or by shame. And why, what got Lucian of Samosata so upset at the time of the early church? See, the thing is, if we're brothers and sisters, we actually we're called to share stuff with each other. My resources are your resources. That's what families do. We club together, we help each other, we enable each other in all sorts of different ways. Jesus came to create a radical new community a new family. And we're called to reflect that to the bath that we live in in 2019. Not just reflect the culture that is in Bath back to us, but we look to model something different in relationship with the living God. Dare I suggest that some of our Bath culture, and the same in Winchester before that, you know, we're very careful, we're very polite, quietly anxious all the time. As my GP said to me relatively recently, Tim, you've just got to look after number one. Justin Martyr was one of the early church fathers, and he said this, he says, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else, now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it used to hate and destroy one another and refused to associate with people of another race or another country. Now, because of Jesus Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. If people don't say that of us, we're more like a religious organization than a family of brothers and sisters. And what about proximity? When you're young, you tend to think, well, when I was young, I think, well, I'm just a product of my choices, my good decisions and my bad decisions. But the reality is, the older you get, what you realize is you reflect the company that you keep. And you reflect the values of the company you keep. It's not the number of books you read, the number of films you read, the number of things on the internet you look at. It's actually the people you spend time with. And in a family, you play together, you work together, you eat together, you study together, you walk together, you live life together. And in a Christian way, that new community shapes us into a new life in a new way. And that's why we're looking to encourage people to be part of life groups. One of the reasons why we do that. So how is this possible? I just want to finish with this. We'll look at this in a bit more detail over the next few weeks. But the only reason in this story, I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, the only reason in this story why the younger brother can become an heir and a son again is actually at the expense of the older brother. Because you see now, the whole inheritance of the household, is, it belongs to the older brother. 
And the only way the father can reinstate his younger son and make him an heir again is the expense of the older brother. And the older brother in this story hates it. Hates it. Because the true elder brother, what we'll discover, the true elder brother in this passage is called to be is Jesus Christ. Because it was Jesus who came to earth, from heaven to earth, to sacrifice himself so that we could have our place in heaven. In a sense, he came to lose his own sonship in spending eternity with his father so we could have full rights as sons and daughters of the living God again. And the knowledge of that sacrificial love, the love of a father in the way that he gave his son for us, changes us and will turn us into the family that he created us to be. In the summer, I uh, was reading uh, some books uh, about um, during the Second World War and the Japanese and some of the people who were captured in Japan. I was thinking about Peter Bezira some of the time as well when I was reading them. And at that time, um, some of the people who were captured in Japan were made to work on what's called the Death Railroad. It's along a valley of the River Kwai in Thailand. And the conditions were so horrendous, so awful in that city in that time that basically 1,000 to 2,000 prisoners died for every five miles of the railroad that was built. 1,000 to 2,000 people died for every five miles. And it so got so bad when they were building it that actually the men who were building the railroad were constantly at each other's throats. It went back to the law of the jungle. One writer put it this, this way. They said, death was everywhere. And as things got worse, and our lives became more poisoned by selfishness, by hate, and by fear. Nothing mattered except my, me surviving. The evolutionary law of the fittest. Then something happened, he said. One day, as they were working on the railroad, a shovel was missing at the end of the day. And the officer in charge went into a flying rage. And he demanded that the missing shovel be produced, or he'd literally kill the whole workforce. Suddenly, one man stepped forward. I took it, he said. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death on the spot. Later, at the second tool check, later in that day, this time no shovel was missing. There had actually been a miscount at the first check. And the word spread like wildfire amongst the men at that time, that here was an innocent man who had been willing to die to save everyone else. The incident had a massive effect on the workers there. They began to trust each other like brothers. Death was still with them. No doubt about that. But we're being slowly delivered from the grip of death and its destructive grip on us. What happened? The sacrificial love of one man changed a jungle into a true community. Out of great love, Jesus Christ gave himself for you and me and for the world. An innocent man, Jesus Christ, stepped forward, 
was beaten into the ground to save us and to adopt us as his children, becoming heirs of God and to turn us into a beautiful family of brothers and sisters. That's good news today. So this morning, if you will receive Jesus, receive the love of the Heavenly Father for you, receive his embrace for you as a son or a daughter, it will produce in us a deep security that our hearts long for. It will enable us to access and to, to communicate and to be with God all the time. And to enable you to persevere when you go through times that are incredibly uncertain. And as a church, I'm praying that the love of the Father radically transforms our relationships from that of distance to that of brothers and sisters sharing everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning for giving us everything we need to be a family, to be your sons and daughters. I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come afresh upon us. And that you would begin the transformation or continue the transformation in our lives. But maybe for a handful of people this morning, you long for the deep security of a loving Heavenly Father. You constantly feel alone and you long to have access to someone. And you live constantly tossed about by a world that seems beyond your control. And there's good news this morning. Because you've come to us in Jesus to bring us life, to adopt us as your children, and to make us secure. And Father, I pray would you continue to work by your Spirit in producing the community amongst us that looks like what you intended it to be, your loving bride where deep love flourishes and sacrifice flourishes and turn us into a family of brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.